0: Today on episode number 328 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Chris Friend joins me to talk about teaching as listening.
1: Produced by Innovate Learning,
0: maximizing human potential. Hello and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak. And this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Chris Friend joins me today and I I'm excited about you hearing his conversation, but let me first share a little bit about him. Chris Friend welcomes people to new ways of thinking. He has been teaching writing classes since 2000, seeing and trying a variety of approaches to writing instruction. He believes testing disempowers students and makes them resent writing. He jumps at any opportunity to give students more control over their own learning and writing. As director of hybrid pedagogy, Chris works with authors and editors in a double open collaborative peer review process to bring out the best in writers and collaborators. Chris, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed.
1: Thanks, Bonnie. Good to be here.
0: We are discussing today a topic which gets talked about a lot simultaneously while also not being talked about a lot (laughs) 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 let's begin with what does it look like to not listen and let's start with listening as a one-time act where do you see this showing up in your own teaching and failures that you've had or in the ways others approach sort of listening as a one-time act
1: what I should do here is uh, demonstrate rather than answer your question and just answer a completely different question because <laughs> I choose not to listen to the question you just asked. Uh, so an, an example for you. Years ago, I, I was struggling with in-class conversations and, and I wanted you know to have dialogue going and students contributing to discussions and have those discussions lead to a certain outcome. And I went into class thinking, oh, by the end of this discussion, the students are going to have this one particular concept figured out or whatever. And then I would Initiate the discussion and I would try to kind of guide them through as we went and people would say something And I would try and suggest other options and that sort of thing to shape the conversation To arrive at where I thought it was going to go whenever I walked in the beginning of the class And uh, funny how it always ended up going exactly where I thought it was going to go uh, Even though I thought I was hosting a discussion in class I wasn't what I was doing was inserting my opinion and my view and what i wanted to have happen in the class without actually listening to the students i acted as though i was and i gave students feedback to make them feel like i was listening to them because i would you know i would echo back what they said and i would make sure that they understood that i heard what they were talking about and that i agreed and that sort of thing but then i would insert my own predetermined uh, directions and and it just, it wasn't an actual conversation. It wasn't a discussion. I wrote about it before and said that it's a lecture in disguise, that it was really me just trying to get the students to jump through the hoops. And and that was that. And that's when I realized how important listening is and how it's actually important to really listen and not just, you know, pretend.
0: I'm hearing a little bit of listening as performance. These are the things I'm supposed to do to show you that I'm listening, mm-hmm. but actually as I am performing, that means that I'm actually not listening, even though I am performing the act of listening.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's been a hard one for me to deal with because I tend to be a bit of a control freak in class. I want to make sure that you know all my ducks are lined up and that everything goes according to plan. I blame that on being raised in Orlando. I, I first worked at Disney whenever I graduated from high school. And if anybody's been there, they know what show quality looks like. And everything at Disney is scripted and rehearsed and timed perfectly. And put on the same show every single day the exact same way because they've got it all down to a science. And that was like my concept of what performance was, uh, was developed in, in that environment. And so then I go into the classroom and, you know, I don't want to call it song and dance, but I jokingly refer to it as song and dance. And when I am doing the performance of teaching a class, I default to wanting it to be as scripted and perfect as I was raised to expect. And that just takes all of the vitality right out of it. That makes it a script that doesn't respond to the students who are in the room at the moment. And one thing I always loved saying is that when we teach students, we don't teach content. We teach the students who are in the room. And you can't do that if you go into the room with that preconceived script in your head and you want to get the students to all do the same thing because you want it. That's not teaching the students in the room. That's teaching whatever idea is in your head that you brought into the classroom.
0: I do think we can take that idea a little bit too far, at least when I think through my own failures. I got to go in with a plan. (laughs) And I do, in my case, really need to have thought through the timing of things. Because otherwise, what I'm left with is I can become so enthralled with what is happening in that moment and get so enveloped in it and excited and We're going down ways I never expected us to go, but not actually be a good facilitator because there was a plan, you know, so it's, it's really this delicate dance between the plan
1: Mm -hmm. and And and, improv.
0: Yeah. 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 So I guess leaving enough room in our plans because we always know there'll be stuff that's unexpected. But I get a little nervous if I ever feel someone's going way too far in one direction or the other on the plan versus the, the moment.
1: In my experience, planning less has always paid off for me. The, the more I go into a class thinking I know what's going to happen, the less likely that is to actually happen or the less that involves responding to the students in the moment. So when I go into a class without a plan, I have an idea of the kinds of things i want to talk about or I've, I've got this question that i want to use as a prompt to get discussion going and i force myself to not plan the details of that conversation because then i have to rely on the material that the students provide in the class at the time and that makes it more improvisational and so i, t- I teach freshman writing classes my my shtick is rhetoric and writing courses um, usually first year comp kind of thing And I I always tell students that my goal is to make them into little rhetoricians. And the thing that I bring to the class is experience working with rhetoric and experience looking at the world through the eyes of a composition scholar or teacher or whatever you want to say there. That's what they don't have. They have experience with writing. They have experience with the things that interest them. They just don't have the lens that I can bring to the classroom. So when we have conversations, if they go off the rails, if we go on tangent after tangent or something like that, I always remind myself, okay, wait, how would a rhetorician look at this thing that we have now gone on this tangent talking about? And that's how I loop it back. And I'll usually be really deliberate and explicit about it and just say, okay, so this thing that we just talked about, we're in a writing class. So here's how writing people look at this thing you just talked about. And that immediately brings it back to where, you know, where I wanted the conversation to Dwell. I'm not going to say where I wanted it to go because that's that's not my goal anymore. But I want it to be about rhetoric-related concepts, and I can always hold the lens card like, "Hey, now we're going to look at this situation the way that this class is going to expect us to look." It allows the freedom and flexibility of the conversation to go where it wants, while still then giving me the opportunity to show students what the discipline that they're there to study looks like when it's being used in you know quote unquote the real world so whatever whatever topic they bring in is real to them and important to them and so great let's look at that through the lens of rhetoric because that's what we're here to do
0: I really appreciate that distinction that you just made I joke a lot which is it's also serious <laughs> that I live in the future <laughs> I don't live right mm-hmm. now and that's a real struggle of mine and so that this tension that you talk about of you know the plan and where it's supposed to go where it can dwell versus where it needs to go. And that idea of mm-hmm. dwelling somewhere as a means for, in, in your case, introducing them into, what is it like to be a person who studies R- rhetoric? rhetoric. Yeah. <laughs> That's the word and, I, I and, and, really am not. It doesn't just roll right off my tongue the way it rolls off of yours, Chris.
1: That's oh why I'm here. and Welcome to my world. I will, I will provide it's, the it word. And also, thank
0: goodness for spell check too, because as I was typing it, it, just it snapped that right up for me. I didn't even have to learn how to spell that thing. So then the next um, one would be that we need, and it's actually kind of related to what we've been saying, but listening beyond the answer. I was really intrigued by this analysis that Robert Talbert did of a study about hybrid or online learning. I'll link to it in the show notes so people can go and check it out. And essentially, it was him telling the story of the study where they looked at what are your preferences about what you value the most in this in this class you're about to take? Is it that you value instructor videos or having office hours or practice tests. There were all kinds of assets that might be contained in this class. And essentially, by the time you're done with that, you can see in a relative ease where people perceive they're going to really value things. And then it gets to the end of the class and you can really see, and and Robert Talbert does such a good job of of sharing this, to see the things you think you're going to value about an experience in learning Mm -hmm. will so rarely match up. It's nothing like wrong with the students who took the survey, we would be the same way, you know, thinking, trying oh, yeah. to predetermine what an experience is going to be like versus dwelling in it, right? So that, the whole thing mm-hmm. of, of sort of projecting some of our assumptions. So how can we turn listening where we go beyond those assumptions that we're all going to have whenever we start asking questions about preferences and mm-hmm. desires and vision for a class, et cetera?
1: As you were describing that, I realized that I put students kind of through the same paces uh, at the beginning of my classes, and and it never occurred to me that I'm basically forcing them to listen more intently. Whenever we start at the beginning of a first-year composition course, I introduce it as a course about writing rather than an English course, and that one small shift makes a huge difference in what they expect in the class. A lot of them are used to, well, read a novel and write an essay about a novel. And I say, nope, this is going to be about rhetoric. And so we're going to look at how people use writing in the world to get things done. And that just kind of blows up their brains a little bit because that's not what they were expecting. And then to get back to your question about listening beyond the answer. At the beginning of this semester, I was asking students, as I always do, what kind of class do you want to have? and what kind of policies do you want to put in your syllabus? I never write the class policies in my syllabi. I always leave that up to students to write because each group of students has different needs, and I want that reflected in the policies. And I want them to invest in the class to make sure that it runs the way they want it to. And this semester, one of my classes, just like, I asked that question, what kind of policies do you want in a syllabus? And I heard, I didn't even hear crickets. Like crickets would be loud compared to (laughs) what happened in this class. It was dead silent and nobody made a move. And that was after I asked, uh, I presented two different syllabi to them. I was like, which which of these courses sounds more interesting to you? Do you wanna do course A or course B? Silence. (laughs) Out of 20 students, I had four people speak for an entire hour. It was painful. And it occurred to me, because students volunteered more information, and I actually, you know, closed my mouth and opened my ears and listened to what they were telling me, that the questions that I was asking weren't appropriate for them in the moment and at that time. I was asking them questions that were more expansive than they had ever been asked before. For a teacher to say, What do you want in your syllabus? they just couldn't comprehend that I would actually want. Them to generate ideas. And they have no experience in this. They've never been asked to write a policy in a course syllabus before. So they didn't even know where to begin. They didn't know what they could get away with. They didn't know what was important. They didn't know how you brainstorm this sort of process. And in my mind, like, hey, I do this every semester. Why not? So what policies do you want? I'm like, in in my head, I'm like, I'm being such a nice, responsive teacher because I'm giving them this great opportunity. And it fell completely flat because I was asking the wrong question. And so I had to listen to had to struggle to listen enough to that silence and to ask why there was silence there and and what kind of concerns they had in their mind. And eventually someone said, we've never been presented this option before. We've never had this chance before. We don't know what to do. And it reshaped my entire connection with that class. And I had to basically back up, start over again. And it helped me figure out how to unlock that class. And the, the class sessions since then, we've had conversations. Yeah, it's still a quiet class, but we're we're engaged, we're interactive. They understand that I am there to help them. They understand that I really do want to hear from them, and, and it's, it's moving again. But I had to throw out my question because I asked the wrong one, and I had to listen to the information that they really wanted to provide me and not the information that I thought I was going to get.
0: We've explored a few ways in which... Our attempts at listening wind up being far from it. And now we'll talk a bit about teaching as listening. As you were describing that experience, it's it's really hard to share with people who haven't been teaching as long as us because I think so often it's so easy to just attribute it to one's own failure and it kind of becomes a little too close Mm -hmm. to our identity and our sense Mm -hmm. of meaning and significance. And I I can't say it, it never happens to me but I at least have enough failures to go like we can get through this mm-hmm. moment that we're in, but also teaching right now with the oh, amount gosh. of individual trauma multiplied by collective trauma, like we have never <coughs> seen in our lifetimes. Sometimes I just feel I could check the box in the clunkiest ways. Like I ha- I have, decided that I'm not going to require people to turn their cameras on. We did a little bit of sort of how do we want to show up as a community? And I can't, can't even tell you now any of the things that they decided, but it was a, a very short list of like, <laughs> you don't have to turn on your camera. You don't have to do this. You don't have to do that. And and I just think they have enough policing in their lives right now. They have enough. I, I don't need to be that for them, but I have been- to just clumsily go. So I just, just yesterday I would go. So no one's saying anything, and I get that. I, but so, could you just do something to let me know? And and they really have taken to using the little—they're the, not emojis, but like the thumbs up or the reactions. The, literally, yep. if I just ask, I'm in it because I literally will think in my head, "Oh, they've gone to the restroom," or like, "They're not mm-hmm. even there anymore," mm-hmm. and that I will get the fastest, most universal response. Mm-hmm. And I'm and I'm I'm not used to that, but I go, oh, "Okay, this class." this group of people, we're developing a language between each other that I can Mm -hmm. get better checks than I could if I was with you in a classroom, be like, okay, we're tracking, Mm -hmm. we're good. And they are quieter, like Mm -hmm. you said, and some of them are just going to be quieter. You have to stop fighting that. It doesn't, you know, and find other ways to listen besides what we normally think of as listening.
1: Yeah, I I completely agree that now is a crazy time to be teaching, and I am so glad I have multiple years of experience. If I didn't have 10 or 15 years of experience, I would be losing my mind right now. But also because I have experience with many, 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 many classes. This semester's classes amaze me with how flexible and sympathetic students are when things go wonky because what isn't going wonky this year when things go wonky, students are patient and kind about it. And they are so forgiving when stuff doesn't happen the way it's supposed to. And I'm getting the sense, like, like your students give the reactions to let you know that they're there, I'm getting the sense that students are really trying, that they really want to make this work. They really want to get something out of this class. And they know that that just looks different and is hard this semester because of the circumstance. And it's been so relieving to know that I don't have to be perfect for them because nothing is perfect right now. And when I show fallibility, when I show that things just screw up, they are kind. And, and we just, we, we meet in the middle, basically. It's like, okay, I'm trying here. You're trying here. Let's make this work. It's been heartwarming in a way that I really, really needed this semester to know that, you know, we're, we're going to get through, we're going to make it, and we're going to learn things and it's going to work. We just don't know what shape that's going to take. And that goes back to the the dwelling in the moment and, and being aware of how things are actually happening to just relax and not sweat the small stuff and not freak out because I'm losing control of something, but to understand what really is happening in the classroom and help students navigate that situation as best as possible.
0: Sean Michael Morris, I believe, was the person who coined the phrase nish, And I am finding myself so grateful that I don't rely so heavily on the scheduled sessions we meet, you know, Mondays at 2.30, as opposed to I can see the depth and the richness in the conversations that are actually coming out. They're, it, the technical way I built them are quizzes, but they are mm-hmm. the kind of quizzes that students are receiving 100% on because they shared their answers to these open-ended reflective questions. They're not intense, you know, assessments as much as they are opportunities to reflect. And I'm so glad that I did that because whereas that might have normally taken place, those deep, rich, revealing, vulnerable conversations Mm -hmm. in that web conference, it's just not happening. (laughs) I mean, although... Mm-hmm. To be fair to myself and to our growing learning community we have had all of two class sessions. So no one would not expect to have sure. everyone you know showing up in such vulnerable ways to begin with but I really like that term to the idea that we can be fully present in those moments of learning lots of different times throughout the week and what a nice thing that is to have built it that way where that's where I really am starting to feel some of those connections and it's great cuz so so much of it too. They just might not be ready to do this with an entire group of people, but they're ready to do Mm -hmm. it with me because some of them know me from prior semesters and, you know, that building up that kind of trust is nice.
1: We need to remember when we're in a, a video conferencing environment or a Zoom session or something like that, it feels like a performance. It feels like a show. It feels like it's being broadcast. And at my institution, we've basically been asked to record every single session so that students can go back and view it again later because you know schedules are a mess right now. With that performativity in mind and with that sense of it being broadcast or recorded or something, I completely understand someone's desire to leave their camera off, to not be vulnerable, that sort of thing. The connections that we're accustomed to sharing with students when we meet with them face to face Are not going to happen when we're meeting with them through these mediums that make us feel like we're performing, and that make us feel like what is normally a conversation that stays within a particular set of walls could possibly be broadcast on the web for anybody to see. Who knows? We're not going to have the same vulnerability. We're not going to have the same openness, and it's it's not a failing of the instructor; it's a failing of the medium at this point.
0: Yeah, and that there are so many alternatives to capture that same rich experience that we love. Mm -hmm. Listening, part of what you're talking about also involves becoming incredibly comfortable with silence.
1: Mm -hmm. And isn't that important this semester when we're dealing with online classes and Zoom and that sort of thing? Because we, and I've, I've made a running joke out of it in my classes this semester, that there is that capital a capital s awkward silence the awkward silence that you have to allow in an online presentation because it takes longer for people to unmute their microphone and, and, and then gain the confidence to ask the question that sort of thing so it's just it's a slower process we have to allow that silence to sit for a bit to let everybody to to have that chance to respond but more importantly when even when we're having a, a face-to-face conversation so much can be exchanged through silence we can see reactions and moods we can watch students process by the looks on their faces we can see the ways that they're struggling with things or thinking through things and when you get a student who is trying to articulate something and they're stuck on words and they're they're working on finding ways to articulate their ideas it's so tempting to jump in because we know what words are supposed to go there and we know what they're trying to articulate but that takes the entire experience away from them And by allowing them and the class to sit in that silence for a moment, we give them the respect of allowing them to process the information and to come up with the phrasing that is uniquely theirs. And that's when they're going to learn the material and feel like they own it because they were the ones who were able to articulate what they were trying to say. The silence in that case is where the learning happens.
0: You talked about this earlier, but I'd love to have you share more before we get to the recommendation segment. And that is just this tension, wanting to control
1: Mm -hmm.
0: versus allowing students to have that control over their own learning. I mean, they always have their control. I think sometimes we just try to give ourselves the idea that somehow we could control it. So what has that been like for you to learn to give up some of that control?
1: See, I, I don't think they always have control over their learning. I think that so many of their classes are designed around regiment uh, not even rigor regiment, where you are supposed to do these things the same way every week. Uh, don't get me started on discussion boards with the you know write one and reply to two thing like that. That's regiment. That's baloney. That doesn't get you anywhere. the The experiences that I've had, I usually reteach myself the importance of listening uh, the first week of the semester and it usually happens once every 2 years or so and i go in and i have a rough class and i ask myself why and i realize oh crap i went in with my own thinking and i didn't listen to them instead and when i when i evaluate what i did in class that day i in, invariably when i have a bad day where things just blow up or or just are there a flop or something like that i can i can always find some place in the class session where i decided that something needed to happen a particular way and once i identify that thing and i go oh okay no i need to let the students make this choice or or lead the direction here or figure out which way they want it to go i go into class the next time do that and it just works so much more smoothly every time i have a bad day in class i find it's because i didn't listen carefully enough to the students it's because i went in thinking that i was the one who knew what needed to happen and that just means that i'm ignoring them and that's the worst thing that i could possibly do when it's their needs that I'm there to try and work with. So the less I try and impose myself on them, the more organic and natural the class becomes. And then I become a resource for them where I can help them think through things, but they're the ones that are going to be determining where we go.
0: This idea of students having control over their own learning, I probably have two things simultaneously happening in my mind. One is that my students are reading Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And within that book, he talks about Viktor Frankl, who wrote the amazing book called Man's Search for Meaning, about his experience in the concentration camps. And we just literally read it together, portions of it, a couple of days ago. So it's very fresh in my mind. But just this idea that he lost everything. He lost his family. He lost access to food. He lost his social relationships. He lost everything. And the only thing he had left was the freedom he possessed in his own mind to have a vision for what it might look like beyond his present circumstances. So that's in my mind. I also have in my mind right now that sometimes we'll talk about our kids. They are now six and eight. And so occasionally, this actually doesn't happen that often, but occasionally... I actually really like that this happens. My my daughter will say something like, you know, you can't make me do that. And again, I, it so rarely happens. And it's really hard to describe that I actually find this a beautiful thing, because I think it's part of her recognizing her own agency and her own autonomy. Mm-hmm. And what a beautiful thing it is even at six years old to see someone realizing like, and so I'll say something like with brushing her teeth, it just came up and I'd be like, you know, I, I both could and couldn't, I, I could try, mm-hmm. it'd be very messy. We probably would both be very hurt and neither one of us mm-hmm. would be happy with the results because your teeth probably wouldn't be all that clean. So I think you probably are right. So we'll talk about the distinction between, and, and we don't, we don't as parents, there's really, I can't think of anything we force Physically, like I just, I can't think of anything when they were little, of course, you grab their hands so they don't run into the street, but they're well sure. beyond those, those years. But we would talk instead about when you make choices, then there are consequences <laughs> to those choices. And we try to have those consequences map as closely to whatever was happening. So all this to say, I think that's what I meant. I think we try to impose control around people's learning and you actually can't control someone's learning you could only control the little games that you play with them to make them jump through the hoops and so you can you can give yourself the illusion of control but you're actually losing the fight just like the toothbrush example I don't know I don't know know, no
1: I'm I'm so glad you brought that up because that reminds me of the importance of saying that giving students control of a class is very difficult not just for us to let go of our position of authority but for students and to help students grow into that sense of agency that has been beaten out of them by so many classes before. If I go into a class and I say, I'm going to let go, and I'm going to let the students direct it. I have to be ready to provide support for them. And I'm, I'm going to use the word nurturing here. I, I need to be able to help nurture them to give them or, or help them build that sense of agency to be able to control their own learning because so many of their classes in the past have been teacher run. And and these are the things you must do. So I I do writing classes. It's, you know, your essay must be this many paragraphs and this many words long. And I don't set length requirements on my papers because I want it to be based on what they are trying to accomplish with their, with their work. And that even, even just the the lack of a word count on an assignment sheet can be a, a terrifying experience for some students because they've grown to rely on that because that helps them understand what the teacher is imagining or envisioning for this assignment. And it requires constant constant reminders that they are in control of their learning they are the ones that are important in this situation they are the ones who are leading the direction of the class they are the ones who need to learn to make evaluations of what is good what they are attempting to do whether they have achieved their goal because once they graduate they're not going to have a teacher there saying yes that's good no that's not they need to be able to make those evaluations themselves so the, the process of giving students control goes hand-in-hand, hand, as you were suggesting, with the process of developing student agency. And that is not something that happens overnight, not something that happens immediately, not something that happens just by asking them what, sil- what policies they want on their syllabus. It's something that takes weeks, probably semesters, to develop meaningfully. And it requires a ton of patience and a ton of reiteration of the concept of the importance of the student.
0: I haven't gone back to check this theory, but I think if I went back to earlier episodes, I think I probably would have used the phrase, give students agency. And I noticed that not once did you even give a hint of anything that sounds like giving them agency. And I I wish I could remember who it was that said this on, on teaching in higher ed, but You can't give them it because if you think you can give it to them, it's something that That you're taking control. Yes. Yeah. So you, I just want to repeat back the words that you used for anyone who struggles with me with trying to reframe that. I think I'm mostly down. I haven't said it in a while, but it's still something I have to just think purposefully about before I talk about agency. But you said grow into that sense of agency. I mean, it's already there. But you're trying Mm -hmm. to give them the confidence that comes with you're not playing the same games that so many other teachers have played with them. And it takes a while to unlearn that and to build up that trust.
1: Oh, yeah. And I'm not trying to give them their confidence either, because that's not mine to give. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to help them develop their confidence. I'm trying to help them see that confidence is a thing that they are able to acquire or to have and to possess Along these lines, one little trick that I've used for several years now that I love, and it really helps me reframe the way I look at my relation to the other people in this room, I refuse to use the phrase, my students. I don't own them. They aren't mine. They are students in my class. They are students that I work with. They are students in the room. And that one simple little rephrasing has radically shifted the way that I perceive and articulate my relationship with the folks that I'm working with in a classroom. And as an editor of a journal, I've seen a lot of articles come in talking about the relation that teachers have with students in the room. And there is a marked difference in the affect of someone when describing my students than there is with someone describing students in their classes. It makes a big difference. And I would encourage anyone listening to give that a shot. Next time you say my students, blah, 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 Catch yourself and find another way to say it that more accurately articulates the nature of the relationship in that room.
0: I found myself saying my students earlier in today's conversation, and I, I do really like to work on language. It takes a while to change, and as someone who it's hard. every single week is recorded and, and knowing that my my mistakes in language will go out, but I don't. That doesn't mean you give up. You keep. I mean, how much more than should I think intentionally about the language that I use? This is the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations and the one I have, I sort of have been hesitating recommending it for a while because it definitely is people making some interesting choices. <laughs> and so it's not for the kids, not something you want to bring, you know, the kids out to see, but I just, I loved it so much. So it's a television show called Raimi and it is on the Hulu streaming service. And it is about a, the main character is a Egyptian Muslim, and he grew up part in Egypt and then moves to the United States. And you kind of, it's kind of one of those shows that does, you know, changes around different times and places and things like that. And I just, it gets praised a lot for its portrayal of American Muslims, and especially sort of this I mean, in in any religious tradition, the idea behind what we're expected to do within our given faith tradition, and then what we may find ourselves wanting to do. (laughs) So without getting too specific and giving anything away in the show, every sort of temptation you might think that a young, attractive man in his 20s might have, he probably has checked all the boxes of what you might think about. But rather than living for stereotypes, it really is a beautiful depiction. There is another character in the show who uses a wheelchair. And rather than having just this two-dimensional character of someone who is disabled, they just have a beautiful, complicated, multifaceted person who doesn't always make the greatest of choices. None of the characters in the show, except for maybe one, make uh, the greatest of choices all the time. So it just was a delight. It's it's both funny And also very, you really get into the characters and you become to really care about some of them and what happens to them. And there are just two seasons of it now. I understand it has been renewed for a third season and I cannot wait to watch it. And just like anything, any show that focuses on any religion, it would maybe not be appreciated by all Muslims because he's not following the faith. He's, you know, he's just, but I, I just as someone who follows a different faith tradition, I just love the wrestling because I'm really not into legalism, regardless of whatever religion it is. But but I really do like the ways in which... I mean, it has, also has some beautiful depictions of that faith tradition. Really, really beautiful ones. I felt like I learned about some of the traditions in that religion and, and some mm-hmm. of the dynamics within the family. So I found it to be good. And I, I did, before I even recommended, I did go and like, in general, that seems to be overwhelming for both people who are Muslim and then those who are not. But just like anything, did everybody love it? No. Did I love it? Yes. Oh sure. Sure. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, what do you have to recommend for us today?
1: So, I'm going to cheat, and I'm going to recommend two things. Please. Uh, First one, I don't think I've ever heard anyone recommend a clipboard manager on your podcast before. No, but they're saving Uh, my my life right now. On your computer, (laughs) you can hit copy, and then hit copy, and then hit copy, and then later on hit paste and paste and paste. Yes. That oh my gosh, like mind blowing how much time that saves and how much frustration it saves, uh, being able to grab multiple separate objects from one place.
0: Can we go back for just a second? Because I have been using a clipboard manager and how I've been using it Mm -hmm. is to save them up in a queue. So I can go back and see four times ago, I copied this and so I bring it up and I do that. But what you just said maybe makes me realize there's even more there. Could you literally do copy, 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 paste, paste, paste? Is that what you meant? Like that in a string in a
1: row? So it would depend on how the app itself works. Yeah. You probably then would, you know, paste number four, paste number four, paste number four. And then mm-hmm. because it's in a queue, number four would always change. And then that would work. Oh, uh, just hitting copy, 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 paste, 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 literally like that wouldn't work.
0: But I'm kind of thinking I need app, to dig probably. in even more. Like I need to, because there's probably even more I can be getting out of it. But even just what I'm getting out of it today is amazing.
1: Yeah. They're so simple and they save so much time and they make it so much easier to move through taking information from one place and putting it somewhere else. So the uh, the other thing I want to recommend is actually on behalf of students in one of my classes, we were talking about implicit racism in textbooks, in schools, in buildings, that sort of thing. We got on the subject because I mentioned that the room in which we met was named after a dead white guy. And you know, you drop that in the middle of a class and that's going to get some attention. And we we went back to that later and talked about it. My, my class is going to be writing a textbook. And so we want to make sure that the textbook itself is anti-racist. And so we've had some really good, intense, honest conversations about what racism looks like and how we don't even notice that it's in our textbooks and yet it is there and it is pervasive. And several students said that they wish that more of their classes would talk openly about racism. They wish that more of their classes would use current events in their discussions within class. And this goes back to what I was saying earlier about you know, the lens that I bring to class and that I, I look at the world as a rhetorician. And so we, we talk about the language that is used to perpetuate racism. We talk about the ways that racism can be found in texts and that sort of thing. So the thing that students wanted or articulated that they want is more discussion of how the real world plays out and and how the subject under discussion applies to the world and so uh, the thing i want to recommend is that people directly honestly and openly address or acknowledge racism in their classes because you might be surprised that students are hungry for those conversations and we're not going to be able to do anything about racism if we pretend it doesn't exist or if we pretend that it doesn't apply to our class, or if we pretend that we don't need to give it any attention, that's going to allow it to persist. So we all need to talk about it.
0: That's such a good suggestion. And I love that it comes from your students. That's so such a good thing. And I want to go back to I the clip, to clipboard <laughs> manager, but it feels really awkward to make the transition, but I'm just going to make it anyway, because I wonder if you have one that, yeah, you, that you would recommend. <laughs>
1: No, I don't. That's the problem. So I'm going to have to take my own uh, recommendation here because I've gone without one for many years. I used to use an app called Alfred. Mm. I don't even know if it's still out there. It It is. is. There was a whole bunch of overhead with it, and I, I stopped using most of its main features, but its clipboard managing features were fantastic. I might go back to reusing that just for that one feature. There are a number of other smaller apps. I've tried two of them today, and I don't like either one of them, so I don't have a product name off the top of my head.
0: It's funny cuz I'm using Keyboard Maestro as my keyboard manager which is kind of like oh I can't come up with a good example but it's like it has all these features and I'm using like 1% of it that it's it's so much yep. more than a clipboard manager but I decided hey start small start using it for this and it's been yep. it's been good now I have memorized the keyboard shortcuts that I can just pull that up the list of what I want and go back to them
1: And I'm a huge advocate for um, platform agnosticism and application agnosticism. So any recommendation for technology I'm going to make is going to be a type of application, not something by name, because that shows preference and privilege. No.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And if people are thinking through clipboard managers, too, it's not just within that one device, because some of them now will go from a smartphone to your computer back and forth in both directions. And that's really pretty cool, too. Chris, it has been such a joy to get to have this conversation with you today. It feels special to me that we would be talking in a season like the one that we are collectively experiencing. It just, you brought me joy this afternoon and I know you're going to bring joy and hope to so many people listening. So thanks for joining me for today's conversation. It's
1: been great spending time with you and great chatting with you again. It's been quite a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.
0: I'm thankful to Chris Friend for joining me for today's conversation you can reach the show notes at teachinginhighered.com 328. And you're also welcome to subscribe to the occasional Teaching in Higher Ed update at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. When you do subscribe, you'll receive a ebook that will give you a guide of ed tech tools for both teaching and productivity. Thanks so much for listening. And we'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.